You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. It was 1939 in Poland and his name was Maximilian Kolbe. Maximilian Kolbe, pictured here, was a Roman Catholic priest in the outskirts of Warsaw in Poland, right about the time the German Nazi regime invaded Poland and came through and devastated and destroyed. Maximilian Kolbe was a friar that was passionate about printing materials, expounding the virtues of Jesus, and sending all sorts of flyers and bulletins all throughout his region, trying to encourage the people. And the Nazi party did not appreciate his Roman Catholicism, nor his propagandizing that they perceived to be in opposition to their ideologies, and so they arrested him in September 1939. But that did not look well. It didn't go well with the local people of that area. And they were trying to keep some semblance of peace. And so they released Maximilian Kolbe in December of 1939. They offered to have him sign some papers. Because he was actually originally German in his ethnicity, he could sign these papers and be left alone. He refused to do so. He said, no, I am a Pole. I will be associated with these people. And so for another year or so, year and a half, he continued to produce materials, printed materials, and he would send them around. Not only that, but he and his friary began to actually house and shelter Jewish people so that by the time he was finished, he had sheltered and hidden and moved around over 2,000 Jewish people in Poland. But in February 1941, he was finally arrested and his friary was shut down and he was imprisoned in a local prison there in his area. But in May of 1941, he was transported to Auschwitz. Prisoner 16670 in Auschwitz. And in Auschwitz, he was regularly beaten, he was tortured, he was lashed. He was uh, the victim of deprivation where they would not feed him or give him warmth. But he was always ministering to the people of the concentration camp. These Jewish people who rejected his confession, he was always ministering to them and praying for them. So much so that they would, after hours in the dark of night, they would smuggle him to the camp doctor for medical care. One summer of 1941, the commandant of the concentration camp came to all of them and had them assemble on the parade grounds and said that there was going to be a visiting dignitary. And with all of the pomp and circumstance and all of the distraction, that if anybody tried to escape using the distraction as a cover, then there would be drastic and severe consequence. That if anyone tried to escape, 10 more of their cellmates, of their inmates, would be killed. Well, sure enough, the visiting dignitary came and there was a lot of distraction, a lot of activity, and one man managed to escape despite the threat. And good to his word, the commandant again assembled everybody on the parade grounds and said, 10 of you now must die for this man's escape. And so he just walked down the line and at random chose 10 different people who would die. 
One of those selected at random was a man named Frankacek Gajanacek. Great Polish name. And when Frankacek Gajanacek heard his name, he simply crumpled to the floor. It's recorded that he said these words, My wife, my children, I have to live. That's all he said. And Maximilian Kolbe was so moved by this that he stepped forward and he approached the commandant and he said, please, my life for his. Let this man return to the line. And the commandant was embarrassed, but to save face, he had to grant the request. So he agreed. And Maximilian Kolbe and nine other men were thrown into a pit. They weren't shot, they weren't killed immediately. No, no, as an example, they were simply thrown into a pit and they would be given no food, nothing to drink, and they would be slow participants in their own death by exposure, deprivation, starvation, and thirst. And it took over two weeks. The Auschwitz concentration camp janitor recorded in his memoir that he would walk past the pit every so often, and he would always see the same thing. Maximilian Kolbe, on his knees, in prayer, ushering those other nine men one by one to their death, giving them the gospel as they died. And he was the final survivor until finally, after two plus weeks of no food, nothing to drink, no protection from the elements, the filth, the the horrific conditions, even the guards said, this has gone on long enough. And they went into the pit and they gave him a lethal injection of carbolic acid and he died Well, Frankacek Gajanacek somehow survived Auschwitz. He was reunited with his wife and with his children. But after the war, he went through prolonged seasons of depression and anxiety and self-hatred. He could not get over the fact that someone had done this for him. The guilt and the shame. Why did he deserve to live when this man, who had done nothing wrong, who wasn't even Jewish, died in his place? And he would be confined to his bedroom. He couldn't function. He couldn't go outside of his house. And finally, a dear close friend of his said, Frankacek, you're looking at this all wrong. You're looking at this as if there is some way that you can pay him back. And you are ashamed of yourself that you can't. You could never pay him back. You're missing the point. You don't understand mercy. You got something that you did not deserve and you did not get what you did deserve. Rather than be ashamed and try to figure out how you can pay him back and why you don't deserve it, instead, Frankacek, you must dedicate your life to making his name great. You must demonstrate to the world the mercy that you received. And to a point, Frankacek Gajanacek dedicated the rest of his life to having Maximilian Kolbe canonized in the Catholic Church. Now, we don't espouse to sainthood in our tradition. But in the mid-80s, John Paul II did, in fact, canonize Maximilian Kolbe as a saint. All of that is not to say that we should pursue sainthood. No, no, no. Of course, in our tradition, we believe that every believer is declared righteous, is declared a saint of God. But it is a great indicator of what we're going to be looking at this morning as we turn to Romans chapter 12. That illustration is a perfect setup for really our big idea for the morning for this passage, and it simply goes like this. The Christian life equals thank you. 
What does it mean to be a Christian? What am I supposed to do, think, believe? What is my behavior? The Christian life equals very, very simply thank you. It is a great, grand expression of gratitude. Our lives are not ever supposed to be a whole bunch of stuff that we're supposed to try to do to pay God back for the gospel. That is a great, grand heresy, and it's a bondage and a slavery. There's no freedom, there's no joy, there's no peace, there's no love in that mindset. No, no, no. Our lives are to be lived in response to that which has been done for us already undeservedly. Our entire existence is one big expression of gratitude. The Christian life equals thank you. So with all that, if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 12. We're going to turn a significant corner this morning. Romans chapter 12, as you're turning there, I want to remind you, our overarching theme for the entire book of Romans, all 16 chapters, is the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. That grace, that mercy, where we get what we don't deserve and we don't get what we do deserve. The righteousness of God given freely, abundantly, infinitely, and utterly to man in the person of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're only going to read these first two verses of Romans chapter 12. We could spend months here. Blessedly, we're not going to. We're going to be relatively brief. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is God's word. And this passage is yet again a perfect proclamation and a presentation of our gospel. The good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another, as we will see. This morning's passage is really finally, at long last, we started the book of Romans way back on August 11th of the last decade. Woo! It's been a decade. And now here we are in chapter 12, and it's the great grand hinge of the entire letter. That's really instructive, it's really informative, it's really important for us to understand it's consistent with everything else that Paul writes in the New Testament. There's a pattern to the way that Paul writes. Eleven chapters of doctrine, of truth. Eleven chapters of indicative. This is who God is, this is what he's like, this is what he has done. Before we ever get to the doing, but please don't miss that Paul's got a wonderful model presented to us. Yes, there's 11 chapters of doctrine, and now we're going to have chapters 12 through 16 that are all very practical and applicational, but sandwiched right in the middle between the truth and the life, there's worship. The very end of chapter 11 is Paul just spontaneously combusting with praise which is a marvelous model for us. There is all of this doctrine that produces doxology, and that is what produces our doing. Let me be as explicitly clear as I can. Doctrine produces doxology, which produces doing. And if you're doing all of this doctrine, and it never produces doxology, doxalagos, the glory word, worship, then you're not doing the doctrine right. You're missing the whole point and the basis of it. Doctrine produces doxology, which produces doing. We're gonna hinge now 
from all of this truth, all of this indicative, to how then shall we live? This practical walking around life. God has done this great and glorious thing on our behalf. So what and now what? Just these two verses, and I'm gonna give you a three-point outline here that we can follow. They all start with C. We're gonna talk about consecration. We're gonna talk about cooperation. And then we're gonna talk about celebration, very briefly. So Romans chapter 12, beginning again in verse one, I wanna talk about consecration. It's not a word that we use very often, very commonly in our walking around speech with one another. Are you consecrated this morning? Why, yes I am, thanks for noticing. So what in a word, in an example, in an illustration is consecration? How does one be consecrated? The best way I could illustrate it would be thus. A plain sheet of white paper that you take, you sign your name at the bottom, and you hand it to God. And you trust him to fill in all the detail. That's consecration. Take my life, let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. They should write a song about that. Thank you, hymnalist Haversham. You take a plain sheet of paper, you sign your name, you hand it to God, and you say, I don't know what all you're going to put on there, but I'm in. Totally, fully, I am consecrated. Let's look at how Paul talks about consecration here in Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. It says, I appeal to you, therefore. Now, just to get a little bit geeky and Greeky, because that is, as you know, my want, in the Greek text, the therefore is actually there first. Even though technically it's the second word, it's called a false start in Greek, they always put the conjunction second, trust me. Therefore is grammatically the first word. The therefore is therefore a reason. It is connecting the first 11 chapters of truth to the last five chapters of living. Based upon the doxology, the worship that Paul has just led us through, that's what the therefore is therefore. Therefore is the hinge of the entire letter. Everything hangs on that. It's the so what and the now what. That's what we get to talk about this morning. Paul says, Therefore, I beseech you, I urge you, I entreat you, I implore you, I beg you. So it's really fascinating that even after 11 chapters of indicative, this still really isn't an imperative. It's a blunted imperative. I'm begging you. He's not using his apostolic office to command them. He's saying, I'm begging you, brothers. He's not pulling rank on them. He's saying, I'm right here with you. This is the basis of my imploring you. I beg you, I beseech you, I urge you, I entreat you. I beg you, I parakaleo, I come alongside and I exhort you. Now, I used to like the way the NIV rendered this, in view of God's mercy. It's a bit more of an interpretation than a translation. That's okay. It's technically, I beg you, by God's mercies. In other words, that's the basis of my begging you. All that God has done, that we did not get what we deserved, which is what? The wages of sin is death. In view of God's mercy, or by God's mercy, this word mercy is often used to mean compassion. I think the closest Old Testament equivalent would be loving kindness. His unmerited favor, perhaps. His moving his love and his goodness and his compassion and his care and his concern and his nurture towards those who do not deserve it, who in fact are rebellious God-haters by default. In view of that, I'm begging you. I'm begging you, Paul says. I'm coming alongside. And finally now, we get our imperative. 
It's actually an infinitive verb. I beg you, I beseech you, I implore you, I entreat you to present. There it is. That's what you do. You present. This is a part of consecration. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present. Now, this is a technical priestly term. You'll find this word elsewhere in chapter 6 of Romans where Paul says, do not present your bodies as members of unrighteousness. It's a priestly term, to stand alongside. It's what a priest does. In fact, remember that we're talking about Saul of Tarsus, renamed Paul, who was very familiar with Jewish custom. He has in his mind the Levitical sacrificial system. The purpose of the priest is always to point people to the sacrifice. The purpose of the priest is always to point people to the sacrifice. So when Paul says, I urge you to present, that's a priestly function, to present your bodies. In the Old Testament, if you, a resident of Israel, brought your offering to the temple to be a sacrifice at the altar, you would approach the the Levites or the priests who were on staff, who were on duty that day, and you would say, I'm here to make a fellowship offering, a peace offering, a burnt offering, or whatever kind of offering. And the priest would say to you, ah, okay, if that's what you want to do, you're going to want to cut here, chop that bit, burn that bit to ash, eat that part, share that part with the priests, share that part with your family, take that part out of the camp. Now here's the knife. And you would cut because you were the one who had to get it on you. You had to get it on you. The priest would point you to the sacrifice and you had to do it. You had to take that life. Something innocent had to die in your guilty place. Which is why it was so scandalous in the gospel accounts when we hear Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, come, come to me, come to me. What is it? Oh, you've got this, you've done this, you think this, you've said all these things. Yeah, okay, nail here. Nail here. Nail here. You have to get me all over you. You have to do it. You have to have my atoning sacrifice on you. You have to do it. And then in a sense, the high priest himself crawls upon the altar at the cross, as it were. See, the purpose of the priest is to point people to the sacrifice. Now, because of that, Paul says, amazingly, because of that finished act, you and I do the very same thing. But very importantly, a different kind of sacrifice, a living sacrifice is how we are to present ourselves. In fact, there are three characteristics of how we are supposed to present our bodies. Now, Paul says, present your bodies. He does not merely mean your material, corporeal, physical frame. He means your entire material life that exists in this world. Just like when the animal was taken to the altar of sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem, that animal was fully involved. There was no part of that animal that was not experiencing all that was going on there. Very similar to the chicken and the pig walking down the road. Stick with me. The chicken and the pig are walking down the road and they see a billboard that says, you can prevent hunger, feed the poor. And the chicken says, I've got an idea. We should go and make those people a ham and egg omelet. To which the pig says, yeah, I don't know. For you, that sounds like a contribution. For me, that seems like total commitment. I'm not sure I'm in on that deal. Paul says, no, you and I, as we consecrate ourselves, we present our entire material beings with 
total commitment. That is the kind of sacrifice that we are. But there's three kinds, three describers of the sacrifice that we are. Number one, it is a living sacrifice. We are not to rashly try to go pursue some sort of martyrdom just to show God and everybody else how much we really mean it, how thankful we really are. No, 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 no. We are to be the walking around will and wisdom and working of God in this world as though Jesus was trying to live his life through me because he actually is in my unique context. This is a sacrifice that is living. But as Chuck Swindoll has said, (laughs) the trouble with living sacrifices is they like to crawl off the altar. Yeah, I know that. But we are to be a living sacrifice because the final full sacrifice has happened. It is finished. We are to be living sacrifices. We are to be holy sacrifices, he says in verse 1. The best synonym I can give for holy is, um, let's see, gaudy. Not G-A-W-D-Y. No, gaudy, G-O-D-D-Y. It's godlike. And remember, holy means so much more than merely moral or pure or separate. It's more than that. It is God's character moving forward to set the world to righteousness because that's the kind of God that he is. That's what he does. He holifies. We are to be that kind of sacrifice. Holy. Yes, moral. Yes, pure. Yes, separate. But moving forward as the righteousness that we have been the recipients of, moving forward in the power of God in our various spheres of influence. We are to be living sacrifices. We are to be holy sacrifices. We are to be acceptable sacrifices. I love this. What a promise that God has already granted. Again, in the mind of Paul, as he's writing this, he has in mind the sacrificial system of the Levitical priesthood from the book of Leviticus. On the day of atonement in Yom Kippur, when the priest would go, the one person that could go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sin of the people for the year. He had to do all these preparatory things on his earlobe, his toe, and his thumb. That was kind of weird. And then he himself would go into the Holy of Holies and he would make atonement by sprinkling blood on the mercy seat for all the people. And all the people would be gathered outside somberly, solemnly waiting. Is God going to accept this? Is God going to accept this? Is he going to, is he going to receive this? Has something gone wrong? Did the priests do it wrong? Is it going to be okay? Is God going to receive this? Is my sin going to be covered? Is my sin going to be taken away? And then the priest would come out and they knew that God had accepted the sacrifice because he would hold up his arms and he would say, Shalom! Peace! He has accepted the sacrifice. Which is why, immediately after the resurrection, when the disciples are terrified, locked in an upper room, and Jesus comes to them, what is the first thing that he says to them? Peace! Shalom! He didn't speak English, he spoke Aramaic. He would have said, Salam! to them. God has accepted my sacrifice. It worked, it's finished, we are vindicated. And now because of that, when you and I present our material lives as a consecration we can have complete confidence that it is accepted when we do what we do this morning as we try to hold up the name of Jesus to make it more beautiful and more believable do you know what God says I accept despite all the reasons I have given him to not accept Jesus has given him the reason and he does accept that is incredible news Paul says I beseech you I beg you to consecrate yourselves, present your whole material lives, 
on the altar as a living sacrifice, a holy sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice. And then Paul says something very interesting. Which is your spiritual worship? Most of our translations will say spiritual worship. Why do we say that? I don't know. Because those two words are not in the text. What Paul says, this is your logical liturgy. It's a strange expression, so most of our English translations go, mm, spiritual worship, but it's not proskuneo. It's not worship like bow down and praise. It's not. It's a liturgy. It's a regular, frequent, repeated action, and it's logical. It makes sense. This is our logical liturgy. In view of all that God has done, the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ, the only thing that makes sense is to make much of his name. It just makes sense to be a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice. It's the only rational response. So we volitionally, diligently, vigilantly live our lives on the altar. Now the view from atop the altar provides four very important things. The view from atop the altar as a living sacrifice provides four very important, coincidentally, P words. The first is persistence. The view from atop the altar provides persistence. This is my position until I leave this life and there are no breaks. Oh man, I was a living sacrifice, but that was just Sunday from nine to noon. Now I get to be all about me. Oh no, 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 see the world sees that, smells that, and is reviled by Christianity that has that approach. No. The view from atop the altar says, oh, this is where I am to be. Persistently, perpetually, this is my expectation. What is frustration? An expectation not met. I expect the world to be for me in some way. Not when I'm on top of the altar. I go, that smells like me. Hmm, delicious. I believe I'll stay. The view from atop the altar provides persistence. Secondly, it provides perspective. It's hard for me to feel like I'm in charge of my life or anything else when I'm on the altar of sacrifice. <laughs> I'm not really running the show. If I'm atop the altar as a living sacrifice, I am not in control. I am not in charge. And so I'm not going to be frustrated when things don't go my way. Oh yeah, it's not supposed to. I'm consecrated. I'm presenting my entire material life for the service of another. Which leads me to the third P, posture of humility. It's hard for me to feel arrogant toward anybody else when I realize, oh, I live on an altar. I'm no better than you. I'm no worse than you. It gives me a proper posture. I am living a life atop the altar. Fourthly, my performance. What am I actually supposed to do? Oh yeah, I am here for someone else and for everybody else. My whole life is my life for you. I don't have to try to gain it or improve it. It's sealed up in Christ. He's given me everything and seated me in the heavenly places with him. Reminded of that great theological treatise from 1989. You might remember the movie, Batman. For some reason cast by Michael Keaton. I have no idea why. Where Batman tells the Joker finally at the last climactic scene, I'm going to kill you. And the Joker says, I've already died. It's very liberating. It's a great point. To have our lives already laid down and taken up in Christ, the view from atop the altar is incredibly liberating. See, the Christian life equals thank you as we are consecrated. 
Which leads us to verse 2, where we are going to talk about cooperation. Paul says this in verse 2. Do not be conformed. Why do you suppose Paul says don't be conformed? For the same reason parents tell their kids not to run in the house with scissors. Because they're running in the house with scissors. You never wake your kid up in the middle of the night and go, hey, by the way, one day when you learn to walk, don't run with scissors. You don't do that. That's Creepsville. You tell them to not run with scissors when they're running with scissors. Paul says, don't be conformed. And he uses this really complicated, multifaceted word. It has the idea of being smashed or the technical term, smushed into a schematic. Smushed into a schematic that's not what you want to be. That's conformed. The word really only exists one other place in the New Testament, 1 Peter 1.14, where Peter says, very, very similarly, don't be conformed to the pattern of your ignorance and former passions. Now that's very, very instructive. That's telling us something about the world in which we live. There is always, always, always forces that are trying to conform you into something that is bad for you. There's always something trying to smush you into a schematic that is not God's plan for you. In fact, I would contend there are three elements that are always working to conform you into a schematic that you don't want to be. There is the world. That's what Paul says. Don't be conformed by the world. The whole system of godlessness, of Christlessness, is always trying to conform you, to smush you into a pattern. If the world had its way, if social media had its way, every single one of you in here would be a Kardashian. Praise God that it's not happening. But the world system of pop songs and movies and TV shows and books and blogs and internet social media is all trying to compress you and to smush you into a schematic that is not God's plan for your life. That honors everything other than the sovereign God of the cosmos. It's trying to smush you. Not only that, Peter says, you're also being conformed by the ignorance of your passions. The flesh, there's either the world or there's the flesh. Your tendency to rebel against God by default, by nature. What Psalm 32 says, you are covered up and crooked deep down from wickedness, trespass, iniquity, and sin. Your default tendency to do that which is opposed to the plan, purpose, and peace, and person of God. That's your flesh. That's working against you. The world is working against you or your enemy, the devil, is working against you. All three of those things, all working together, are trying to conform you, to smush you into a schematic that is bad for you. Or, Paul says, you should be aware that at any given moment of your life, 24-7, all three of those things are always soliciting you to sin. There is a conforming work happening against you all the time. Don't allow it diligently consecrate, present yourself atop the altar or you will be smushed into a schematic that is bad for you. Instead, he says, don't be conformed. Oh, now we're gonna get another passive imperative. It's not a demand, it's not an apostolic command. It's, a, it's an entreaty to receive something that's being done to you. Be transformed. He doesn't tell you to go transform yourself. You can't transform yourself. Be transformed. Receive that transforming. There is either the world, the flesh, or the devil trying to conform you, or there is God himself that is trying to transform you. Now this word is marvelous. It is metamorphosis. This word only exists four times in the New Testament. 
Two of those times, it describes in Matthew or in Mark the transfiguration of Jesus. Where the dimension of our world is sort of split wide and the God-man reveals his full deity to a couple of the disciples. He is metamorphosed before them. The only other two times that word is used is here in Romans 12, 2 with Paul, where God is trying to transform you, not make you better. To completely transform you into something other than, here in Romans 12, 2, and also 2 Corinthians 3, 18, where Paul says, but we, with unveiled faces, not like Moses, who had to be ashamed because his glory was diminishing, our glory is increasing. Why? Because we are gazing at the glory of the Son of God and we are ever increasingly being transformed into his likeness because we always become like that which we behold. What you looking at? We always become like that which we behold and we are being transformed and you don't get to transform yourself. We cooperate with what God is wanting to do. You don't transform yourselves any more than you don't make yourself healthy. Seriously, look, you you don't make yourself healthy. You cooperate with other forces from outside of you that are going to try to make you healthy. You eat vegetables. You exercise, you take supplements, you take medicine, you don't lead a sedentary lifestyle. Remember, sitting's the new smoking. I know, we have to be active, all of these things. You do all these things to try to make you healthy, but you don't make yourself healthy. You cooperate with those things that will make you healthy. Or you can cooperate with a big giant Sam's bag of sour cream and salsa, flaming hot Cheetos and a six pack of Mountain Dew and find yourself belly up in a calf lab when you're in your mid 40s. You can go that approach, I don't recommend it. You can try it. You're going to cooperate with something. Cooperate with that which is going to transform you or cooperate with that which is going to conform you. You don't do the transforming. You cooperate with that. How does transformation happen? I tell you, I've read this passage a thousand times, I think, and it struck me again for the first time as if I'd never read it. By the renewal of your mind. But I think I've always extracted that as if that's an imperative. Like, I have to go and renew my mind. It's not what the text says. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Renewal, anakinos, a refurbishing, where God's going to do a thing with your mind. God is responsible, and you have a responsibility. God will get it done, and you have a responsibility. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How do we allow our minds to be renewed? Well, we submit ourselves to God's purpose and his plan. God's word, God's spirit, God's people. We read his word, we pray, we spend time in the wise counsel of others, and God renews our minds, and we are ever increasingly transformed, whether or not we actually feel it. He is transforming us. I've had the pleasure as a pastor of getting to know many of you for many years now, and maybe you don't see it, maybe you don't recognize it, but I'm humbled and moved. I look back on the several years past and go, my God, my God this person is so much more radiant. I just have a deeper affection. There's so much more Christ-like. God has chiseled some pieces off. He's fired some things off of them and look at them. They're being transformed. It's so humbling and wonderful to watch. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We don't have to do that. And he's not giving us an imperative. He's saying, receive that. I used to give this illustration until I stopped because I got hurt doing it, I would take a glass bottle and I would jam it full of metal wire, just 
pull it, pull it, pull it, full, 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 stuff it full of metal wire until all the wire was totally tangled, messy, and all just wadded up in there, very, very jacked up and very tight and compressed. And then to show off how edgy and crazy I could be, I would take a hammer and I would bash that bottle and glass would go flying and ha ha, and I'd cut that little chunk of my thumb off one time on the Liberty Hall stage over there and awkwardly had to walk around with my thumb bleeding in my pocket. Everyone thought I was doing I got your nose thing. I wasn't, I was just hemorrhaging. Anyway, I would take that broken bottle and I'd move it aside and I would pick up that tangled mess of wire and it would still have the same exact shape as the bottle. Say, right. We were bound by sin and the world and the flesh and the devil and it was affecting us and the, we've been saved and the bottle's been shattered and it's been ru- but that wire remains and God's now going to do a slow transforming process. He's gonna straighten out that wire. Sometimes he's gonna pull it. Sometimes he's gonna bend it. Sometimes he's gonna scrape it. Sometimes he's gonna heat it up. But he's going to do that. The more time we spend in his word, the more time we spend in prayer, the more time we spend in the wise counsel of others, God's going to do a thing. Don't be conformed, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, which now leads us to celebration. From consecration to cooperation, finally now to celebration. He says, so that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We get to live lives celebrating that this is really true and that we are that rare human that actually gets to know the will of God so that by testing, we may discern what is the will of God. And he uses these wonderful words, that which is good, that which is pleasing, that which is acceptable. That you yourself get to be the walking around demonstration with your material life, which Paul says in this world is the dwelling place of the Shekinah glory of God. And when you find yourself experiencing love, joy, and peace, when you find yourself doing things that actually are good, that are holy and pleasing and acceptable, don't you see what Paul's saying is? That is the evidence that you are actually doing that which is the will of God. Now, the grammar here is very strange. What Paul says, you may know the will of God, the will of God is that which is good and pleasing and acceptable. That is the will of God, that which is good and pleasing and acceptable. So when you find yourself doing those things, you are the proof that it's happening. Be encouraged because I want to remind you, Paul says, there's nothing good in you, not a shred of anything. And so when you find yourself doing good and pleasing and acceptable things, I'm the proof and I celebrate because the Christian life equals thank you. Oh my God, that you have not forsaken me. In fact, that's what it means to concentrate to consecrate, to cooperate, and to celebrate. We would put it this way in conclusion. We point people to the sacrifice by being a living sacrifice. And that's what our world is so desperate for. Not people that are labeled according to a particular political bent or another, but people who actually sincerely find joy that they get to live their lives for another, to make much of the one who died in their place. The Christian life equals thank you. And I'll just tell you, what an opportunity, Christian, we have to be known, to be characterized in our day and time and culture and country. You may not know this, but our nation's a little bit topsy-turvy right now. You may not know this, but it's late February At the end of this year, we're going to have a presidential election. And it seems as though the entire nation has gone, well, there's a Greek term, uh, cray-cray, 
totally nuts. Everyone's losing their minds. And a lot of people are looking to Christians like, hey, where's the, where's the bellwether? What, what should we be thinking and feeling? We consecrate, we cooperate, and we celebrate. That's the hope of the world. And I will tell you what this world needs to see is people who are living their lives saying thank you as a giant expression of gratitude for the one who, like Maximilian Colby, stepped out and said, my life for his. May we say thank you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be in this passage. And I pray, God, that your word, not my words, will continue to sound forth and you will encourage all of us. And Father, if there are one or two or more this morning that don't know you, that are still trying to strive and accomplish and achieve and earn, Father, would you remind them that they are like that man on the line in the Auschwitz death camp, but that someone has stepped forward and said, I will, I will take that place. Would you usher them out of death into life And would you give them wisdom and courage to live a life of expressing gratitude? For the rest of us, Father, who are believers, would you remind us all over again, we don't have to pay you back. You don't want that. But we are to diligently, vigilantly, volitionally, joyfully express gratitude by presenting our entire material lives on the altar. And we get to be the proof of your goodness, your glory, and your grace. So would you continue to have your way with us this morning, Father? We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.